Welcome to an inspirational Sunday message from Found Church. We hope you will be challenged and encouraged while listening to this message. For more information, or if you'd like to contact us, please visit our church website, foundchurch.co.uk, or you can also find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. The blood of Jesus, and we thank you for these moments we've had together in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So as per normal, if you want to have some notes to follow along with my message this morning, you'll find it on the YouVersion Bible app, and uh, you just simply open up the app, hit the little button on the bottom right-hand corner, and it'll come up with a menu, click on events, and you'll see Found Church right there, and it'll be flashing red to tell you that Found Church is live right now, and you'll get some notes there. But let's just pray before I share God's Word today. Father, I just thank you for the privilege it is to share your Word today. And I pray, Holy Spirit, that you'll speak through me, that what I share will be helpful, it'll be encouraging, it'll be uh, challenging to people. And Father, I pray that lives will be changed today as a result of encountering you during this service. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen. So if you have a Bible handy, I want you to turn with me to John chapter 14. Uh, We're still here in John chapter 14. I just want to read through a few verses from verse 7 through to verse 14, and it will also be up on the screens. So starting at verse 7, and this is Jesus speaking. He says, if you really know me, you will know my Father as well. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Philip said, Lord, show us the Father, and that will be enough for us. Jesus answered, don't you know me, Philip, even after I have been among you such a long time? Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Don't you believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority. Rather, it is the Father living in me who is doing His work. Believe me when I say that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or at least believe on the evidence of the works themselves. Very truly, I tell you, whoever believes in me will do the works I have been doing, and they will do even greater things than these, because I am going to the Father. And I will do whatever you ask in my name, so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. You may ask me for anything in my name, and I will do it. Amen. I mean, as, as I continue our series that we're in just now in the upper room with Jesus, the title of my message today is simply this, Doing the Miraculous Works of Jesus. Doing the Miraculous Works of Jesus. And today we come to the, one of the, for me anyway, one of the most amazing things that Jesus ever said, and it's found in verse 12 that we just read. And Jesus said there, Very truly I tell you, whoever believes in me will do the works I have been doing, and they will do even greater things than these, because I am going to the Father. And lots of people that I speak to are confused uh, to some degree by this text. And the question is, how do you respond to your confusion about this particular text? And before I tell you what I think Jesus means and how we should respond to him, what he says here in verse 12, I think it's important to make you aware of the the spectrum of beliefs that is held about miracles. And and be aware before I share this with you that that each of these views is embraced by profession Christians. I'm not talking about atheists, but I'm talking about people who claim to know Jesus as Savior and claim to believe that the Bible is the Word of God. And at one far end of the spectrum, the first view are those who argue that miracles no longer occur. They once did in biblical times, they would say, during the Old Testament, during the life and ministry of Jesus, and during the early church as seen in the book of Acts. 
but God no longer works miracles. Anything that appears to be miraculous can somehow be explained scientifically, given enough time and analysis. And God always and only operates through normal cause and effect. And these people don't deny the reality of the supernatural realm, but they might as well. Because anything that anyone might suggest as a miracle often evokes from them condescending scorn. And therefore, their response to claims for the miraculous is always cynicism. Always cynicism. And then secondly, moving a little bit further along the spectrum, are those who believe that miracles might still occur today, but they are extremely, and I can't emphasize that word extremely enough, extremely rare. And they would say things like, even if miracles do occur today, you should not seek them. You should not, not pray for them, and your response should be one of heightened skepticism. See, because there's a difference between cynicism and skepticism. Cynics are often snide and sarky, eh, snarky and often treat with scorn anyone who believes in modern-day miracles. Skeptics, well, they're just simply skeptical. They aren't necessarily mean or nasty, and they don't typically mock those who believe in miracles. And then the third perspective that I can see is is one that affirms that miracles still happen, but when they do happen, they occur independently of any human involvement. In other words, God would sovereignly work miracles, but without the agency of any human being. These are people who believe in miracles, but deny that the spiritual gift of working miracles is still operative in our day. There are no miracle workers. And these people aren't cynical, nor are they skeptical, but they are doubtful. It takes a great deal to convince them that a miracle has actually occurred. And then the fourth option I want to share is the option that I would embrace today. See, I believe that miracles still happen. I believe that the spiritual gift of miracles is still operative in the church. I believe that this gift is what I would call circumstantial or an occasional gift. That is to say that no Christian can work miracles at will whenever they please, at any time. If that was the case, every single person in this room would be healed. Any Christian, though, might be given the power to work a miracle at any time, dependent upon God's sovereign will and His purpose. Miracles are therefore to be prayed for. The spiritual gift of working miracles is one that we should all seek in our lives. Whether or not it's given is entirely up to God. And simply because you receive that gift of working miracles on one occasion does not mean that you will always operate or minister at that level of supernatural power. This view is not cynical, it's not skeptical or doubtful, but this view is hopeful and it's prayerful. And then the fifth and final option is at the far end of the spectrum from the the first view. And the first view is that miracles never occur and God never wills to perform supernatural displays of power. But this final option argues that God always wills to perform miracles in our midst. And not only does God always will to perform them, He always will perform them. And if He doesn't, then the the fault is somehow always on us. And of course, I assume that there might well be other options in that, lying somewhere in between the options that I've just outlined there, or perhaps maybe even a mixture of two or three of these options. But our concern today is how we should interpret and apply and respond to Jesus in John 14, verse 12. And I typically come across four interpretations of this verse. And most of the interpretations of this verse 
are driven, driven by this kind of perceived disparity that people feel between what Jesus said would, ha- would come to pass on the one hand and their own experience on the other. They read the verse and they say, something's wrong. I don't believe that the followers of Jesus have done the same works Jesus, Jesus did. Far less have they done greater works than him. So how can I navigate the problem around this problem that, they, that, that this poses for those of us who believe in the inspiration of the Bible? Firstly, some people just simply reject the text and they figure out how to live with a Bible that contains error. In other words, some just give up and concede that Jesus was somehow wrong. And of course, if that's true, then we've got bigger problems than what to do with just a single difficult passage in Scripture. A second interpretation is that Jesus' words refer to something other than miraculous deeds and physical healing. For example, some have argued that the works Jesus' followers do are greater in number than those he did due to the fact that the church is a multitude, whereas Jesus is just one. In other words, the greater doesn't point to a kind of qualitative difference, but a quantitative difference. It simply means more miraculous works. But for me, though, that seems so obvious, it hardly seems worthwhile that Jesus would assert it when he was speaking. Others contend that the greater works that Jesus' followers do is a reference to the evangelistic success and the number of souls saved. See, Jesus accomplished much in his earthly ministry, but the number of people who came to save in faith while in his physical presence was quite small. And very similar to this is the idea that the works are greater because Jesus worked in only one land, whereas his followers work everywhere around the globe. And, or perhaps they are greater because from this point onwards, they are no longer contained or flow from simply one person. Or again, they are greater because Jesus ministered in only a three-year span, whereas his followers are ministering over several centuries. And there's a sense in, in which all those things are true, but do they really account for what Jesus is saying here in this verse? I, I don't think so. Thirdly, if, if the works that Jesus did and promised we would do is a reference to the miraculous deeds and physical healings, perhaps a complete fulfillment of his word is still yet future. If what Jesus said was true and everything that Jesus said was true, then surely this promise has yet to see its fulfillment. Could it be that it will happen in our generation? This is possible and I certainly hope that it's true. But the answer to our question about this verse may lie elsewhere. And a fourth interpretation and an interpretation that I believe in appeals to a wider look at what Jesus said in the whole of Scripture. Rather than taking the verse in isolation, look at it within the whole context of Scripture. And then Jesus said in Matthew chapter 11 at verse 11, and he was talking about John the Baptist, he said, Jesus says there, truly I tell you, among those born of women there has not yet risen anyone greater than John the Baptist. Yet, Whoever is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. So the question is then, why are you and I greater than John the Baptist? And the answer is this, that as great as John the Baptist was, he never ever experienced the fullness of the blessings of the kingdom of heaven, which came through the death and especially the resurrection of Jesus. He never ever experienced that. John's ministry came too early 
and redemptive history to permit him to participate in this glory of the new age which Jesus started when he ascended to heaven. Therefore, the works performed after Jesus ascends to the right hand of the Father and sends the Holy Spirit are much greater. Because they will occur in a different and a more advanced phase of God's plan of salvation. One based on Jesus' finished work of redemption. And in support, of, in support of this view is the last phrase that Jesus uses in verse 12. There Jesus attributes the ability of his followers to do greater works as the fact that he is going to go to the Father. And in the context of the upper, upper room discourse, which is chapters 13 through to 17, this clearly points us to the gift of the Holy Spirit that was dependent upon his ascension to the Father's right hand. Up until that time, Jesus spoke these words, until that time that Jesus spoke these words in the upper room, no one had been forgiven of their sins based on the finished work that Jesus accomplished on the cross and the empty grave. All salvation up to this point had been an anticipation of what would eventually occur. Salvation was based on faith and the promise of a coming atonement that would forever put away sin. But once Jesus dies, rises from the dead, and goes to the Father and sends His Holy Spirit, salvation is based on faith and the finished historical fact of the atonement of sin. So what makes the works that we do greater is that they are done in the aftermath. The aftermath of the final accomplishment of the redemption and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. They are greater because they are done in an era or age that doesn't look forwards to the payment of ransom for sin, but it always looks backwards at it. It always looks backwards. And the message we preach is a message not of a promised ransom, but a paid ransom. Always. Not of a future payment for sin, but a finished payment for sin. The works are greater because they are performed in the age of fulfillment, the age of the new covenant. An age that transcends anything that has come before and God's redemptive purposes. Unlike anything that's happened up until now, says Jesus, you will do works that point people to a finished work of atonement. To an empty grave, a risen and glorified Savior. And you will do it in the fullness of the Holy Spirit's presence and the Holy Spirit's power working in your life. On this view, these works are greater because of when they take place, not of what they are. They occur in the age of the Spirit. They belong to an age of clarity and, and power with the ascension of Jesus and the, the descent of the Holy Spirit and the institution of the new covenant happening in our lives. And this makes sense, especially when we realize that no one can ever do greater miracles than Jesus did, like raising the dead or walking on water or turning a handful of fish and loaves into a meal that can feed thousands. I've never done any of those things, have you? I've tried to walk on water in the swimming pool a few times. So the, the, the word greater must be accounted for in terms of a movement from the age of anticipation to the age of fulfillment. But that doesn't solve everything about this verse. We still have to account for the first half of verse 12. So let's set aside a moment for a debate over the meaning of the greater works and address what Jesus means when he says that we will do the same works or the equivalent works. We need to note several things here in this passage. First, those who perform these works are described as whoever believes in me. Whoever believes in me. And the particular 
Greek phrase in, in John's gospel always refers to all believers, to any person who trusts in Jesus, whether they're an apostle or just an average follower like you and me. And this is crucial for us to grasp as individuals. You don't have to be an apostle or a missionary to do the works of Jesus. You don't have to be a pastor or an elder or an author. You don't have to be well-known or financially successful. It's not one gender to the exclusion of another. You don't have to be of a certain age or of a certain social or ethnic background. None of these things. You only have to be a believer. You only have to be a believer. Secondly, I think it's important that we look at the immediate context of verse 12, because Jesus says this in verse 11. He says, believe me that I am in the Father and that the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. So the words believe and works, sorry, the words believe and works occur together in verse 11, just like they do in verse 12. See, Jesus' works are designed to help people believe in Jesus Believe on account of the works. In effect, Jesus is saying to the people here, if my teaching or the message that I've proclaimed or how I've interacted with people are leaving doubts in your mind about who I am, then look at my works. Look at what I've done. Look at my deeds. Let the works join up with my words and lead you to faith. That's what verse 11 is telling us. So the works that lead to faith are something much more than just words. They have the potential to lead someone to faith in Jesus. What might these works be? Well, that leads me to my third point. The works that believers are said to perform may well be more than the miraculous deeds and physical healings, but they are certainly not less than miraculous deeds and healings. And I say this because the Greek word that is translated work or works is used 27 times in the Gospel of John. Five of those times it refers to the, the work of God the Father in and through Jesus. Some of these refer to the overall purpose of God and Jesus, such as bringing salvation to mankind, which is in uh, John 17 verse 4, or where others are inclusive of the miracles that He performed on a daily basis. Six of the 27 refer to the works or deeds of obedience or disobedience by human beings. The remaining 16 occurrences all refer to the, to the miracles that Jesus performs. And it might be possible to argue that a few refer to more than miracles, but every one of them certainly does not refer to anything less than miracles. In other words, miracles are always, always included. Miracles are always included. So if Jesus is referring to average Christians and not just the apostles, and if the, the working view are miracles, what are we then to make of this promise? Before I answer that, let me point out one more important fact. The promise of Jesus here is not unconditional. Simply because somebody believes in Jesus and does, it does not mean that they will invariably just do the same miraculous deeds that he did. Rather, his point is that the potential for supernatural power exists in anyone who believes in Jesus. The potential is always there in everybody, every single person. But if someone does not believe this text, if someone doubts the reality of the miraculous happening today, if someone denies the ongoing operation of the gifts of the Holy Spirit, if someone lacks any faith or has exceedingly low expectations of what God might do through you today, if someone does not passionately and regularly pray for such works of great power, 
then I would say it's highly unlikely that the works, of, that the works Jesus did will be present in your life and in your ministry. We must also remember that the Apostle Paul clearly teaches that the spiritual gift of miracles is not given to every single Christian. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and verses 9 through 10, Paul refers to gifts of healings and of the working of miracles amongst others. But then he goes on and he asks these questions in 1 Corinthians 12 and verse 29. He says, are all apostles? Are all prophets? Are all teachers? Do all work miracles? Do all have gifts of healing? Do all speak in tongues? Do all interpret? And the answer, of course, that Paul is looking for here is, is no. Not all of us have each of these gifts. Only some do. So on the one hand, anyone who believes in Jesus has the potential to do the works that he did. But on the other hand, not every single believer will necessarily do miracles. The possibility is for any of those who believe in Jesus to, is to do these works, whether or not they ultimately do, it's ultimately up to God. But we can seek, and we can ask. But the question always is though, what are we to do with this? If Jesus said that those who believe in him will do the same works he did, then the question is, why hasn't it happened? I would answer back saying it has. It has. People argue that Jesus can't mean what he seems to mean because we know it hasn't happened. Believers in Jesus have not, in point of fact, done the same works that he did. But I would disagree. I would absolutely disagree. It has happened, and it's still happening today. See, Dr. Craig Keener is one of the most highly regarded evangelical New Testament scholars in the whole world. And he has written what is widely regarded as the definitive treatment of miracles. It's two volumes long, and it totals 1,172 pages. And he spends the first 250 pages or so defending the reliability of the miracle accounts in the Bible and responds at length to the philosophical and theological arguments that some have used to deny the possibility of the miraculous today. But by far and away, the largest portion of these two volumes is devoted to recording and describing miracles of every sort from all around the world during the present church age, with special attention given to the last 150 years or so. He cites documented miracles of healing and deliverance in the Philippines and Thailand, Vietnam, Singapore, Malaysia, and Cambodia. Dozens and dozens of documented examples from reliable sources are listed. He has several hundred examples from churches in India, Sri Lanka, Nepal, Indonesia, South Korea, the Solomon Islands, Samoa, Fiji, Papua New Guinea, New Zealand, and China. The remarkable growth of the church in China is due in, in a large part to the reality of the supernatural as people are confronted with what they simply can't deny, that there is a supernatural God that answers the prayers of his people. The cases he cites often of, uh, involve healings of every imaginable sort, cancerous tumors, blindness, deafness, paralysis, heart disease, kidney disease, tuberculosis, and diabetes, to name just a few. And on top of this, Keener reports several documented cases of people being raised from the dead. And he proceeds to, pre to devote several chapters and a couple of hundred pages to miracle after miracle in Africa, throughout Latin America, and in the Caribbean. And he focuses specifically on the work of Reinhard Bonke in Nigeria and Heidi Baker in Mozambique, as well as the Republic of Congo. The accounts he records from virtually every country in South America are absolutely stunning especially in Ecuador and Chile. He also describes dozens of miracles in Cuba. 
And at this point of the book, he turns his attention to miracles throughout the entire course of Christian history, beginning in the era immediately following the age of the apostles. And people who have argued that when the apostles died, miracles ceased, I would say they've simply not looked at the evidence. Keener has, and he's described them in great detail. He chronicles miracles throughout the Middle Ages and even in the time of the Reformation. And in my dialogue over the years with people who are cessationists, who are people that believe that the miracle gift, sorry, the miraculous gifts of the Spirit ceased or died, died out following the death of the last apostle in the late first century, I often hear them declare with great confidence, if God intended for spiritual gifts to continue, why did they die out with the, following the death of the apostle John? Why is it they're nowhere found in the first several hundred years of church history following the apostolic age? And my answer to them is always simple. They didn't disappear. They are present and they're operative throughout the whole of church history, and they're still operative and happening today. And Keener describes countless miracles in the 17th, 18th, and 19th centuries among a wide variety of Protestant traditions, with examples from virtually every single denomination, Baptist, Presbyterian, Nazarene, Methodist, Pentecostal, from virtually every single theological tradition. And he devotes several hundred pages to documenting a wide variety of healing miracles throughout the 20th and 21st centuries. In one page, in one ten-page sequence, he documents with great detail no fewer than 95 stunning miracles of a wide variety and brings it to a conclusion by saying this, such accounts represent only a very small sample of the claims. Let me tell you, the miracles that's happened in this room are not in his book. The healings that happened in your life are not in his book. And then he turns his attention to healings of blindness and documents more than 350 instances. He also focuses in on a variety of types of paralysis that were healed and several dozen instances of resurrections from the dead. And all of that is only in volume one. Volume one. That's, and this is only one man's research. And I wouldn't be surprised if dozens of volumes of God's miraculous work could be written if there were enough time and people available to record them all. And I'm not basing my conclusions solely on Keener's research. I've read lots of other books and I've spoke to lots of other people that testify to the same truth. And I don't base my interpretation of John 14 verse 12 on Keener's work or that of anyone else. I simply cite his work as evidential confirmation of what I think John 14 verse 12 clearly asserts. And as the band comes and we start to wrap this up, so the question is then, what are we to conclude about John 14, verse 12? And my answer to that question is twofold, corresponding to the two halves of the verse. See, in the second half of the verse, Jesus says that his followers will do greater works than he did. And that is due to the fact that he is about to go to the Father. Therefore, our works are greater, not because of their quantity or their quality, but because they occur under the terms of the superior new covenant. Empowered by the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit, whom Jesus gave to us in unprecedented fullness on the day of Pentecost. But in the first half of verse 12, we hear Jesus promise that we will do the same or the equivalent works that he did. And whilst many people might try and explain this away. 
I'm confident in saying that what Jesus prophesied had already been fulfilled in the course of church history and has been in the process of being fulfilled in our day as well. It has not stopped. It has not stopped. Therefore, our response to the possibility of the miraculous in whatever form it might occur is not to be cynical, not to be skeptical, doubtful, or gullible. We must instead at all times be prayerful, be hopeful, be expectant that God wants to move and work miracles in your life and other people's lives in this room today. That's what I believe for. We've recently seen lots of people be healed in church. But that one week we had the encounter night and then people got healed all throughout the week. And somebody passed a comment to me about that, saying, Stephen, you must have the gift of healing. And I simply said, no, no, no. I just pray. Jesus does the healing. Like, I just pray. And let me tell you, I pray and sometimes people don't get healed. But I pray and people get healed. So I'm going to keep on praying. I'm going to be hopeful. I'm going to keep believing and keep trusting that God still wants to work miracles through me, through you, through our church. Do you believe that? Good. Because what we're going to do is we're going to open up and we're going to pray. Thank you for listening. We hope you've been challenged and inspired. Please feel free to contact us through our website, foundchurch.co.uk, or you can also find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram.